Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. So today we're kicking off uh, a brand new series called Healthy Start, the why and how to have one. And what the series is all about yeah, is the health of our hearts. If we're going to have a healthy start to the year, then we need to tend to the part of our lives that determines everything, and that's our heart. We're going to learn about that uh, more in, in just a moment. In fact, all throughout this month of January. The reason I wanted to talk about that is because right now in culture, in your life, in my life, hopefully we're thinking about the things that we would like to achieve this year. Hopefully our minds over the last month or so have just kind of been reflecting maybe upon what we achieved in 2022 and we're thinking about this year ahead. What are our goals? What are the things that we'd like to accomplish? And I want to help you approach that in the biblical way. I want to help you come at your dreams and your desires. Anybody here have desires? Yeah, we all have desires. I want to help us to approach our desires in a way that is going to set us up to, well, not just not be disappointed, but ultimately to know that we walked in the path of God. That's super important as Christians. And so the title of my message today is a question as we kick things off. The question is this, do you really want what you want? At the end of this month on the 29th of January, we're going to have our annual dream service. Historically, we've always done that service on the first Sunday of the year. But as we are coming into uh, this month, one of the things that I felt from the Holy Spirit is to do a better job preparing you for your dreams. And so we've moved the service to the end of the month so that over the course of the next few weeks, through these messages, we can help you prepare to come to the 29th Sunday. And what you're writing down is not just going to be things that you're kind of like, oh, quick, God, what is it that I want to do? You know, what, what is my life all about? But you're actually being thoughtful about your dreams and about your desires. And the first question is, do you really want what you think you want? Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, you probably know this verse. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Let the striking language of that scripture hit you. Above all else, like more important than anything else, make sure you guard, protect your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from right there. So the first place that we have to begin in this series is to come around a, a common theology of the heart. There's so much that could be said. That's just the kids' church downstairs having a party, having a good time. I'm glad they are. The heart is something that is depicted in a multitude of ways across the media, literature, news, academia, philosophy. And so you and I, as people who claim Jesus as Lord, we need to make sure we know what the Bible says about the heart. We've got to have a, a basic theology of, of what our heart is comprised of, because if the Bible tells us the most important thing we can do is guard our hearts, but we don't know what that means exactly, then it's not going to help us very much. I, I pulled a little definition for you that comes from the Baker Bible Encyclopedia that just gives a, a summary of what the Bible says about our hearts. It says this, that the heart is the total inner self, a person's hidden core of being, 
It is the genuine self distinguished from appearance, public position, and physical presence. And this heart self has its own nature, character, and disposition. So the point is that you have an inner self, and that inner self is what is most true about us. And if you and I claim to follow Jesus, then we've got to come face to face with that truth, that no matter what image we portray, what's most true about us is who we are in here. Jesus emphasized that in his own words in Luke 6.45. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So two times we see this truth stated explicitly to us that our thoughts, our words, our deeds, surely even our dreams and our desires are the overflow of what's in our hearts. And so we better be diligent about the health of these things. Because our internal selves, they have this annoying little habit of causing external consequences, for better or for worse. And these consequences, they don't just like dot your life as though your heart is responsible only for momentary interactions and, and engagements that you have. Now our hearts, they steer the entire direction of our lives. Here's just some of what the Bible says about your heart. Morally speaking, the heart is deceitful. Encouragement incoming. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart can lust. Matthew 5, 28. The heart can lie to God. Acts 5, 4. The heart can be home to envy and selfish ambition. James 3, 14. The heart can foster hatred, bitterness, callousness, jealousy, and more. Yet conversely, when yielded to God, the heart can be loving, faithful, pure, gentle, loyal, honorable, and humble. So there's a war for our hearts. There's a war for your desires and my desires. And you feel the tension, just like I feel the tension. When was the last time that you came to a fork in the road and you had a choice to make between holiness and sin? And you chose sin. And you became desperately aware of how much you need God. Or maybe you did it, maybe you chose holiness. Maybe you resisted the temptation and you chose to cling to the good and you became aware of, of just how marvelous God's grace is to help you live in victory over sin. There's a war for our hearts. It's not just confined to the moral. The Bible has a whole lot to say about the emotional and intellectual capacity of your heart as well. According to Scripture, our hearts can be perceptive, reflective, thoughtful, joyful, and wise. But our hearts can even more easily be anxious, discouraged, despairing, angry, fearful, and more. And this inner self is what is most true about us. And our own experience shows us that this inner life is not content to remain hidden. It always manifests outwardly, oftentimes immediately, but always eventually. And when that happens, you're no longer seeing my performance you're seeing my true person. And that shouldn't make us feel icky, like we're all caught up in living these duplicitous and dishonest lives. It's actually quite the opposite of that. What we're all caught up in is trying to remove the duplicity. It's just that our best attempts can only ever deal with the external. 
And so we try really hard to polish the outside of the vessel, hoping that the, the polish will seep through our porous selves and somehow touch the inner part of our being, but it never does. This is the first lesson of Christianity. The problem is never solved from the outside in because the outside is always the fruit of what's inside. You see, abundant life begins beyond the grasp of human reach where only the divine can touch. And that's why the good news of Jesus Christ isn't just that he's the God who came into human history. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he's the God who comes into human hearts. And he doesn't just repair and restore, he renews. He gives us a new heart. And he takes up residence in that heart so that you actually receive the spirit of the one who for 33 years took on a human heart and guarded it with complete success. So that he's not just given you a new heart and taken up residence in your heart, but he's here to actually help you fulfill what Proverbs 4.23 tells you to do, to guard your heart successfully. So that our hearts pursue and feed upon what's good and constantly uproot what is evil. You see, when Christ comes into your life, these two things happen. Number one, there's a change of status that happens for you. When you're joined to the life of Jesus, the Father counts the penalty of your sin, and every single one of us had an unpayable penalty of sin that we could not pay. But he counts that penalty paid. Why? Because Jesus paid it. You and I are forgiven. So we're not living from a place of trying to gain victory over sin. We're living from a place where we already have victory over sin. There's a change in status that takes place when you give your life to Christ. And that simple fact alone is, is monumental in your battle against sin in the war for your heart. But there's also this other amazing thing that happens when you become a Christian is you receive a change in satisfaction. You see, before any of us were joined to Jesus, hopefully we could admit that our sin wasn't half bad. It was enjoyable. We actually took pleasure in getting revenge. We felt justified in our gossip. They deserve it. We enjoyed sexual immorality. We didn't wake up feeling guilty about it. We liked it. And it's not that it wasn't making us sick or that we wouldn't have detected the sickness if we were willing to be honest with ourselves. It's just that the sickness we were experiencing was akin to something like food poisoning. And the stomach ache that comes a few hours after the meal is always hard to trace back to precisely what bite contained the bacteria. And eventually the stomach ache just becomes a normal part of life. But when you become a Christian, you actually receive the capacity to detect what's wrong before you even put the fork to your mouth. The things that satisfied our taste before now repulse us because our taste has changed. So as a Christian, it's not that you don't have the capacity to sin. In other words, it's not that you don't have the capacity to still eat what's rotten. It's just that now your palate recoils where it used to revel. And if you pay attention to the recoiling, it will lead you to repentance instead of willful repetition. When you pay attention to the recoiling. <laughs> Paul says it like this in Romans, uh, two different chapters, back-to-back chapters, chapters 6 and 7. He talks about our relationship with sin. In chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul says this. It sounds so triumphant. Thanks be to God 
that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Praise God. Wow. Next chapter, verses 21 to 25. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind or my heart and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. And you thought you were doing pretty good. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, I'm also a slave to the law of sin. So we see in these two back-to-back chapters that our relationship to sin is not altogether non-existent once we become a Christian. We can see that something has changed. Our status for sure has changed. Paul declares us free. So also, though, has our sense of satisfaction. Paul says, I actually delight in my inner being in God's law. So on the one hand, I have a desire to do what honors and pleases God. But on the other hand, there's a war happening in me that's constantly trying to get me to do the opposite. Yet on the other hand, again, when I lose the battle, I don't enjoy it the way that I used to enjoy it. So what can we say as Christians about our hearts? Well, number one, they're really complex. Number two, they don't get guarded by accident. The guarding only happens through an invitation for Jesus and his church to help you. And third, primarily what we're guarding against is desire. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I I don't want to do, I end up wanting to do. And even more complex than that, sometimes... It's not even always that the things that you and I desire are objectively sinful. They're not always objectively bad, the desires that we have. Many times they are. Sometimes they're just not good for us. Simply because God is trying to lead you into something better than what you even think you want. And that is at war with certain desires that you have or the motivations that underlie those desires. Back when Nicole and I were dating, 2008, which feels like a lifetime ago, we'd been dating for, uh, I think, five or six months. And at that point in my life, what I thought I really wanted was to be a musician and a songwriter. And so if you couldn't tell, I, you know, get up here and I live that dream out every now and then. I thought that's what I, I really, really wanted. And Nicole and I, you know, reached that, that point in our relationship uh, where um, we had to talk about our, our future and, and the things that we wanted and what we wanted to go after. And I just couldn't see past a life beyond music and songwriting. It's what I thought I really, really wanted. One night we're discussing it, which turned into arguing about it. <clears throat> um, it was like 11 o'clock at night. Nicole's, you can't have a serious conversation with Nicole after 10. Like, good, good luck. And I was being a jerk, so that didn't help. And the argument boiled over into her driving away in her Toyota Corolla down Riverside Drive in Sherman Oaks and me literally running down the road going, wait, stop. Because I just wasn't budging. I was so stubborn. This, this is what I want. 
but my heart wasn't healthy. And so what I thought I really wanted, I actually didn't really want. At least I didn't want it as badly as I wanted her. And I didn't want it as badly as I wanted the life that God had for us together, not just the life that I was intent on pursuing on my own. Which brings me back to the question today. Do you really want what you want? Is what you think you want this year really what you'd still want if you took the brave journey of accompanying God on an inventory of what's been stored up in your heart? Are the things that you want that are actually incompatible with the kingdom of God, things that are sinful and therefore actually an enemy that you've tried to befriend? Are the things that you think you want that you'd end up discovering are actually the fruit of an unhealthy motivation? Maybe things that you're in pursuit of that if you were to analyze are really just, it's an attempt to prove somebody somewhere along the line of your life that they were wrong about you and so you're trying to succeed in this because that'll show them. Let's just say that some of the things that you want, you actually do want. And hopefully you will discover exactly that this month. But then we have to ask the question whether we want those things for the right reasons. And have we rightly prioritized them? St. Augustine, he talked about this concept of disordered loves. And he said that a just and good person is also a person who has rightly ordered his love so that he does not love what is wrong to love or fail to love what should be loved or love too much what should be loved less or love too little what should be loved more. And this is the idea that I think many of us are going to come face to face with a handful of times this month. Because for most of us, it's not that we need a total eradication and replacement of our dreams and our desires. It'll just be that we need a reordering of them. Life doesn't typically come down to a choice between this or that. Life usually comes down to a choice of which thing first and which thing most. And then when first things come first, other things rest securely in the capable hands of God. Are there desires that you have that are serving the convenient yet still unspoken purpose of taking precedence over other desires that would maybe require more selflessness and godliness in order to achieve? Jesus had a few things to say about that, and we'll get there in week three. For now, let's look quickly at David. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David prayed this. He said, search me, God, and know my heart, that inner part of my being, what's most true about me, God. Search that part of me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Essentially what David is doing here is he's saying, God, I want you to bring me face to face with the things that I'm really, truly about. I know I say I'm about you. I know I say that I'm about your will and your desires, but God, when it gets down to brass tacks, I want you to show me what am I really concerned about? What are the things that my heart is anxious about? What does my heart really desire? And notice that David understands that that exercise is totally fruitless if done apart from God. 
It's not a self-examination. It's not navel-gazing that you and I need to get caught up in in this new year. What we need is a God-examination. In the same way that you need a doctor to take an x-ray and then explain to you the x-ray based upon what should be but what is, you and I need God to show us what's really going on in our hearts. We need the one who designed the way our hearts ought to be to show us the way things ought to be. Now, many things are helpful in that endeavor of partnering with God in examining our hearts. And I want to dwell mostly on the third one, but briefly, I want to give you the first two because they're in connection with steps that you can take today. And those steps are, number one, get into genuine fellowship in the body of Christ. And number two, be water baptized. Genuine fellowship in the body of Christ is relationship with people who are They're connected to Christ just like you're connected to Christ. And I can, without saying too much, just promise you that part of how God wants to examine your heart is by bringing people into your life who have a view into your heart that you just can't see. Because while you're looking out there, they're looking in there. And God wants to use them to show you, hey, there's some things in there that maybe need to be reordered, maybe uprooted. Neighborhood groups launched today. I encourage you, go to the welcome home party, get into one. The second thing I want to say is water baptism, which we're going to do at the end of this month. Water baptism is more than symbolic. We learned this last week. It's a sacrament. Sacrament, St. Augustine defined as a visible sign of an invisible reality. All throughout the New Testament, we can see that water baptism is more than just a symbol. Something transformative happens to us when we go into the waters of baptism, where we are laid down with Christ and then raised up with him. Now, if our hearts have the proclivity to go one way or the other, then I think it's best that we have a moment of allegiance where we say, Jesus is Lord of my life, so that when we come to the fork, when we have the choice, we have a moment of allegiance to refer back to that helps us choose the right and resist the wrong. The third one that I really want to dwell upon, though, is prayer. The greatest place for me personally in partnering with God to help me get this right is the place of prayer where I am genuinely communing with God. I don't just mean like reciting my prayers. I don't mean fulfilling it as part of my daily routine. Sometimes it's that. But I mean that place where I'm, I'm really connecting with the Lord. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about, that place of prayer where none of your circumstances have changed, but you have suddenly become more aware of God's magnitude and his goodness. And so you're humbled with gratitude in that moment. And in that moment, there's this experience of quiet and this deeply reaching peace into you. And then from that place, maybe you've had this, you, you begin to ask God, But the way you're asking God is different to how you normally ask God. It's almost as though the Holy Spirit were asking things through you. And none of the requests that you're making, they don't have you as their end. And yet you still have this unexplainable feeling that somehow you are still the beneficiary of them. Somehow you're still involved, caught up in the things that you're asking of God, even though they're not about you. I think that experience of prayer is exactly what it's like to seek first the kingdom of God and to trust that all the other things are going to be taken care of. If you give yourself to genuine prayer this week and this month, 
and you make time to really sit with God, what I suspect you will find is that your desires will begin to transcend the immediately pressing concerns. Things having to do with the self. Things that God knows all about anyway. And you'll begin to uncover the desires of the Holy Spirit. Things that concern the glory of God and things that concern others. This is why on January 29th, one of the questions that I've decided is going to be on your card for you to fill out is this. When I'm in God's presence, what does my heart desire? I know what you desire when you're doing your thing. I know what I desire when I'm caught up in my own plans and all my own activity. But when I'm in God's presence, what do I desire? Now, all of our answers broadly will share the common theme of we're going to desire things that are centered on God and focused on others. But it's also going to be really specific for you. Listen to me. God has a plan for your life that is going to roll out over the course of this year. There's things that he wants you to engage in that are about more than just the fulfillment of your own immediate dreams and desires, the things that, that you like to do. And as you come to God in prayer, here's what's going to happen. I can almost guarantee it because I've experienced it. When you first meet those desires that God is inspiring in you, they're going to feel more like random thoughts and invitations maybe to briefly pray for someone. Almost like quick stops on the way to really praying for the things that matter the most to you. But if you sit with those desires that God brings up, they will become more than just quick pit stops. They'll begin to move up the priority list. They'll go from quick prayer request to a deep desire that you keep returning to in prayer. In other words, they'll become what you really want. You'll realize, for example, the worthiness of taking all your prayer time just to pray for the salvation of that one soul at your workplace who you know does not know God. And 30 minutes will go by and you will have just prayed for them and all the opportunities that you will have this year to interact with them. Just asking God for their salvation. And then your prayer time will be done and you didn't get to you. But God knows. It's not that those things are unimportant. It's just a reordering. I'd rather spend 29 minutes on Rachel, who's a mom that goes to, her children go to my kid's school. End of last year, we found out that Rachel has leukemia. I don't know Rachel, never seen her face, couldn't pick her out in a crowd. But I know that she's a mom, small children. And I know that she has been given a death sentence. And so I'd rather sit with God and pray for her and then have one minute to go, oh, yeah, God also. That's a dream worth writing down. What would happen if your approach to your dreams and your desires this year were 90% others and 10% you? God can work with that, you know. I think you might just be shocked at the kinds of things that God brings up in you as you sit with him in prayer. I was in Dallas this past week. Uh, 
had the privilege to be preaching at a church there. And for this conference that they were doing, they had this Anglican priest who was uh, speaking every day at noon and facilitating communion. And so I was there on Friday, and we were taking communion. And during the priest's sermon, he told this amazing story. Before COVID-19, he had started up a side business of smoking barbecue. So great. So Dallas of him. He was wearing his little priestly collar, and he had cowboy boots on. It was awesome. His name was Father David. And Father David had started this, this side business smoking barbecue and selling that. And then when the pandemic hit, he had an opportunity. He decided to give food to people who were in need. And so this uh, ministry approached him that serves the mentally ill, and they asked if he would uh, provide some food for the people that they serve. And so what he explained is that with barbecue, it's all about math. I guess there's a, a certain amount of meat that the average person eats, a third of a pound of brisket or something like that. And so when you're preparing barbecue for large groups, you know how to prepare because you just take the average of what people eat and you prepare that amount. And so he was preparing lunch for this group of people and he prepared 100 pounds of ribs. Yeah, sounds awesome. And it takes a long time to prepare this food. So he's up really early smoking the meat and then he, he brings it, you know, just before lunchtime to this ministry. He drops off the food and then he leaves. He's exhausted. He goes home. Later that evening, a woman who worked at the ministry called him and said, what did you do? He thought, oh, no, I must have dropped off not enough food or something. What happened? She's like, something happened. Said, what happened? Well, we have three days worth of food here. I have an overabundance. He's like, no, I triple-checked the math, made sure that I smoked exactly the right amount of meat, had my wife check it, my business partner check it. We made sure all the costs, all the, it's all correct. Should have had 100 pounds. Yeah, I know, but when the team kept on going back to the coolers, there just kept on being more meat there. And that group of people ate off that 100 pounds of beef ribs for three days, what should have been enough for one lunch. And that wasn't even the awesome part. The awesome part was that that morning of that that day when he was going to drop off the lunch. That woman was reading in the Gospel of Matthew and she came across the story of Jesus taking and multiplying a few loaves of bread and some fish and feeding 5,000 people out of the country with it. And as she read that story, she prayed a little prayer that God inspired in that moment. You know what that prayer was? The prayer was, Lord, I would love to see something like that in my lifetime. And God's answer was, how about today? What a wonderful kind of life filled with genuine awe and beauty. To come out of the place of prayer concerned with those kinds of things. I mean, if God could answer a prayer like that that day, what could God do through you if your dreams and desires were given over to Him in such a manner where it's not that you counted the things that you want to go after in this life as insignificant and unimportant, you just genuinely counted them as less significant and less important than the things that God could do through you if you gave yourself over to Him. 
And trust me when I say that all of those things coming to pass in your life, it's not going to make you as happy as you think it will. You're not going to celebrate over those things the way that you think you're going to celebrate over them. If anything, you're going to achieve them and then you're going to feel kind of empty because they didn't do what you wanted them to do. I'd rather that be the cherry on top and my dreams and desires given over to God be the cake so that we can experience truly wonderful, awe-inspiring kinds of things. What does your heart desire? when you're in God's presence. Our definition of dreaming big a lot of times is actually so small. C.S. Lewis talked about that. He said, the problem is that it's not that you desire too greatly. It's that your desires are too small. You're too easily satisfied. These big, grand dreams that you, you and I have, those are little things. Certainly small things in the eyes of God. The big stuff. That's that's the stuff that moves beyond the self. To a heart that has no partitions in it. A healthy heart is a partitionless heart. Where God has the whole thing. Let's stand to our feet. We've got time. We've got time to pray. And so I want to do that. Here's the prayer. I want you to listen closely to me because this is for some of us in this room. The prayer is that some of us have mistaken Christianity with trying to get God's signature on all the things that we want to do. And that's tragedy because God has something so much better for you than his signature. God has true significance for you. And so I want to make an invitation to you today to make a choice, to bring down the partition, and to move beyond a life that's just caught up in trying to get God to sign off. Again, it's, it's not that all those things are necessarily wrong or bad. Some of them, they're, they're going to remain. They're all going to go away. It's just a reordering that needs to happen. You'd be amazed what God can do in your life when you give Him the best of yourself, the best of your prayers, the best of your energy, the first of your day. You make him and others the primary thing that you're concerned about. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.